0: Welcome to the Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, R. The reason that people are talking about India is massive
1: digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
0: Enjoy this week's show.
2: Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Chris Gennady, Associate Director of Research at WisdomTree, hosting today alongside Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at WisdomTree. Please note that our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategy nor tied to an offer or sale of any investment product. The views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. We've really got a great show today. In the first segment, we'll be talking about events happening in Europe that are affecting the markets, including Brexit, the Italian economy, and others. And in the second half of the show, our focus will be on Fed policy, and we'll get some market commentary as well uh, from our other host of Behind the Markets, Wharton finance professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. So at this point, Jeremy and I would like to introduce our first guest and welcome Manish Singh to the program, who is Chief Investment Officer at Crossbridge Capital, overseeing about $3 billion in multi-asset investments. I must note that Manish has been a client of WisdomTree Europe. Manish, welcome to the program today. Thank you, Chris, for having me. Uh, I know that uh, from our prior discussion, uh, both uh, we here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as well as you in London, are enjoying some uh, rather interesting uh, late winter, early spring-type weather. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd be curious to ultimately get a sense of some of your, your background and just to, to help introduce yourself and your experience to our listeners today. Sure. Sure, Chris. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, yes. Uh, uh, so I was in, actually, Moscow last weekend. It was minus 18 degrees. Oh, wow. So it seems I, I have brought the Moscow weather with me to London, <laughs> because it's been snowing here for the last three days. Um, as far as my background, so I have my undergrad uh, degree from IIT Bombay, Institute of Technology Bombay, in chemical engineering. And then I did my Master's in Finance in UK at Cranfield School of Management. And I have a CFA charter. I started my finance career at UBS Investment Bank in 2004. Uh, on the fixed income desk, uh, European securitization, which is no more. <laughs> and then I moved on to sous General where I had two, two roles. One was in quant research in European equities, and the second one was on buy side uh, in portfolio management. So I have done three and a half years of sell side and remaining uh, over 10 years now of buy side. And six years, almost six and a half years ago, I moved to Crossbridge Capital, where now I am the CIO. And as you mentioned, we manage over $3 billion client money.
2: And so I'll, I'll be honest with you in the sense that both of us uh, have been traveling uh, throughout Europe these these past few weeks. I uh, mm-hmm. was on a flight coming back yesterday from Brussels, and I got mm-hmm. off the plane, and suddenly I was just bombarded with all sorts of news about something that you had actually written about, I think, a few weeks ago, uh, tariffs and trade protectionism, and of course, connections are being made to China and NAFTA and all these different consequences, uh, as as well as even uh, the European Union. So I'd be, I'd be curious to get your initial reaction. I know it's still early uh, in terms mm-hmm. of things being announced, details being fully fleshed out. But your initial reaction to yesterday's uh, trade policy announcements.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Chris, what I find, uh, find interesting is that, you know, I don't think China can really, uh, U.S. can really compete if it's about who can make steel cheaper i think that that battle has been long won by china and i think it's very difficult for anyone else to win it the u.s should really concentrate on value-added product so when i hear this about tariff on steel, tariff on steel and then uh, using a national security measure i.e you know these things are not good for us i find it strange so i, I see this more as, as a political gimmick and and trump talking to his base rather than it really helping america now, should we take these tariffs or, or, or fears of these tariffs seriously? I think we should because, uh, you know, this is how accidents happen: that people just take things lightly and think, "Wow, this is never going to happen," and lo and behold, you know, it, it happens. I mean, in in 1930s, I think uh, apart from Churchill, many few people believed uh, what Hitler had written in Mein Kampf. <laughs> so, you know, I think you you always have to take things seriously if a policymaker is mentioning about it. But but to the larger point, I don't think this really helps America. I think uh, it is rather going to hurt America. And, and as you've seen already, people are talking about countermeasures and all. and It's going to be uh, really bad for everyone. So that is going to be devastating for markets, devastating for everything else. So what we saw in the afternoon is that how you had Wilbur Ross who came on CNBC and he made his comments about oh it's not going to have a massive effect and he tried to mollify the market. And you saw the markets are back up. But if you're looking internationally, what is happening? I think China is a power to reckon with. And I would say that, you know, US and China has to really work together and that is going to help the world globally. Where I really take a dim view of Europe is that, you know, Europe is far, far more reliant on exports. So if you look at Germany and if you look at what makes up the GDP, I mean over half the GDP is on exports. Some people say even even higher than that which means you're relying on other people's goodwill to buy your product. So I see Europe more exposed to these trade wars and tariffs than, say, China. But ultimately, it will be bad for, uh, across the board for everyone.
2: And so... It's interesting because, of course, uh, and and throughout my travels uh, in Europe, uh, everyone starts off maybe talking about the U.S. picture, U.S. politics, U.S. policy, what can we expect from the Trump administration. But then we look abroad and we start thinking about things and statements that I've heard now for a few years, which is the European growth story is maybe a few years behind that of the United States. But there's a lot of positives uh, potentially on the ground, whether it has to do with consumption or other sort of economic sentiment indicators. I mean, w- would you agree that the picture in Europe is positive uh, is positive and, and could continue its expansion uh, a bit longer even than maybe the U.S.?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, w- I would qualify uh, European story in the way. I mean, if I look at uh, uh, overall picture and how it is evolving and how things have been and where I see Europe is going, I don't think it's positive. But like with anything, you know, if you're coming from a low base and things have been really bad, then you could have a few quarters or even a year of, of people get overexcited about, oh, Europe has come back and, and and Europe is doing very well. I disagree with that notion because I think that nothing has really happened on the structural side. I mean, what has happened is that ECB has bought the bonds, yields have fallen, and people have been rejoicing because, you know, cost of capital is low and you can borrow and ECB is going to, you get issue bond and ECB, ECB will buy a bond. So if people think that ECB will be in the game forever, then yes, you should buy Europe because I think they will keep the yield low and you will be fine. But when it comes to structural measures, I haven't seen that. I mean, there has been a lot of talk about it, but we haven't seen any measures. And on top of that, you have Brexit, you know, which is also going to add complications for, for Europe as a whole. I mean, we have, let's look at Italy, third largest economy in the Eurozone. I mean, that country has not grown meaningfully for over two decades. So it's not as much that Italy has a debt problem, Italy has a growth problem. Because if you grow, then you can bring your debt down, and Italy hasn't done that. So I see, I, I really see Italy as uh, the crisis point. You know, whenever it happens, I mean, it could have happened three years ago, four years ago, but then ECB came in and brought all the yields down, and across the board for Italian corporate, the cost of capital has fallen by more than 2%. So, of course, you can continue being in this game and you can continue thinking that things are going well. Personally, I think that if you do not make structural change, if you do not make the changes, and if you look at the next generation, so youth unemployment in Italy is over 35%. I mean, if your youth employment is so high, who are going to buy your next houses? Who are going to consume? Who are going to go to university? I mean, that really is – I don't feel excited about what happens in Europe. Therefore, I have been underweight Europe for a long time. I continue to be overweight U.S., and I think I will maintain that. That does not mean that you shouldn't buy European equities, because if you buy companies which are in export business, which are selling products to the emerging market, to U.S. and all, then you can make money in Europe. But across the board as an index, I find it very difficult Just To give you one more statistic, you know, people have been talking about Europe doing well, European overweight. If you look at Eurostrox the, 50, the major index, and you look at S&P, Euro stock 50, it's still more than, I believe, more than 12 or 13% below its high, uh, which was reached two years ago or two, three years ago. And if you compare to SNP, SNP is at least 30% over, or at least 25%, given it has fallen by around 5% lately. It is over on that period two years ago. So you're still talking about, you know, if you look at the narrative and if you read the press, Europe is doing well. But that is not really the case in reality when you look at numbers.
2: And Manish, you uh, you did mention Italy there, talking about things like the high youth unemployment rate. Um, it is a sort of opportune time to be talking about uh, Italy because uh, on Sunday uh, there's mm-hmm. a, an important election. Um, I was in Italy last week uh, talking to various clients about their their views. It's it seemed like the expectation was uh, that the Five Star Movement would garner uh, a bit more votes, but not necessarily enough to have a convincing uh, majority. And so ultimately the expectation, uh, at least amongst the clients I spoke to, was the continuation of a coalition government. Um, It is interesting that the clients were also talking about how the bond market wasn't necessarily uh, as sensitive to maybe the risk as Uh in past Italian elections. I'd be curious to get your initial views on what we might expect going forward, obviously, from uh, the Sunday election in Italy.
1: So, I I think I agree with you that five-star movement will get the highest number of seats or highest percentage of vote, and it will likely be a coalition government, and likely a center-right coalition government, where uh, Silvio Berlusconi will probably be the kingmaker. He will not be the prime minister, but he'll have a say in who becomes prime minister. Now, the major thing is that ECB is still there. ECB is buying the bond. The QE program is still continuing. So I do not see that you will have any big gyrations in the market just because of what is happening in Italy. And, and therefore, I am not concerned about what could happen to the European market or, or to the Italian government bond. But what I am saying is that you know, if again they don't have a majority government or they they could they cannot agree on what they have to do, it's it's the same thing again. You you have you have had your 66th government. I mean, that's the 66 government that they will have, which is average life of Italian government in 13 months, and then they haven't done much reform, so it doesn't bode well for what it means for Europe. So, with respect to what happens on Sunday, I think pretty much people know that there won't be a majority government. Centre will come to power, and they will fudge along and they will do a few things. But there is nothing positive which is which is going to come out of this from what we what we have seen, and that is very where, where demoralizing. So while you may not have a major crisis, but it's all leading to a crisis. It is all leading to a crisis. It is building up of a crisis. And as I like to say, you know, for me, when I look at Italy, you know, I see Italy to me is like a Slow sinking Venetian lagoon. You know when things have not changed and it is just getting worse uh, and things are getting worse. But then have people in the north who are very rich and they do their own thing. You have people in the south, you know, who have a much lower standard of living on per capita GDP. They are 40% poorer. They seem to carry on, and it's a nation, so it takes long time for things to unravel. But what I'm saying, there's nothing positive going on. And just if I may, may if I may make one more point, not not justically, but what is happening in Germany, because we're talking Europe. I mean, there you have AFD, which is now polling better than SPD, which is one of the oldest party, or rather the oldest party in Germany. So when I look at Europe and I look at Germany, where it seems like political crisis is building up, Italy not growing, France just fudging along and getting along somehow, it doesn't give you confidence that the Eurozone or has really understood what they should be doing. And then you have exceptional youth unemployment in Italy, in France, and, other part, and Spain. So... What does it mean for future? And that worries me
2: about Europe. So I just want to pause for a moment, reintroduce our guest. Uh, You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm Chris Gennady, uh, working today alongside Jeremy Schwartz. And our guest this half hour is Manish Singh, Chief Investment Officer at Crossbridge Capital. I wanted to uh, invite Jeremy into the discussion at this point.
0: Manish, thanks again for joining us. Uh, And we did that. We sort of deep... Uh, took a deep dive into the political situation and the Trump news and then the European news coming up for, for Italy and the German election. Maybe you could step back for a moment and just describe at, from Crossbridge Capital how you look at the world, how you frame, you know, you talked a little bit in your, your interesting commentary that you're sort of overweight the U.S., potentially underweight Europe, but overweight European exporters. How do you frame client portfolios for people? And maybe just talk a little bit more about your investment philosophy before we go go deeper on some of the sure. specifics. Sure. Hi, Jeremy. Yeah, sure. Uh, so
1: at Crossbridge Capital, we take a very top-down view to investing. So what I really get more concerned about is GDP growth. Uh, we're looking at, you know, what, where is inflation, what is, where is earnings, what is happening to consumption. So those are things we really, we really care about. So the way we build our portfolios, we look at which markets we should be in. And then we will just go with the large-cap names. So we never go into mid-cap and small-cap names. Because essentially, I believe that almost 80% of the returns, and I think ac- academically it is proven as well, you can capture from proper asset allocation. So we, we really don't care about the 10 20% return, which, where you can go and uh, find the next Facebook or, or next, next Google. So we concentrate on large-cap names. We do single stocks in U.S. and Europe, and everywhere else we use ETF. That's the, how we, we, the philosophy of our investing is. In terms of uh, how are we positioned, Uh, As I mentioned, I mean, we are U.S. overweight, uh, Europe underweight, but as I said, we go with specific stocks, uh, so we are happy to take specific stocks with exporters or where they are going to benefit as an exporter. And I I, I have a genuine belief that the emerging market allocation has to continue to grow because that's a structural change which is happening in the world. And that allocation will continue to grow. And therefore, increasingly, you know, we are making, but we are not going overweight Europe, uh, overweight, sorry, emerging market because we don't believe in every market in emerging market. But if I look at China, very, very positive about China, very positive about India. And in China, then I look at Specific stocks once again, the ones that have, that have made a name for themselves in US and the world. So I am long Alibaba, I am long Baidu, I am long JD.com. So the the big stocks, you know, which also form big part of the index. So if you're buying an ETF on Hang I mean, these are the top top ten stocks. Probably top six or seven are these big names we are talking about, which have which are even a big name in US as well. So. What we essentially do is that we'll stick to single name only in U.S. and Europe. We'll do only in large cap. And then we will use ETF to build our portfolio. And our, our approach definitely is
0: top-down. Very good. So um, interesting views. I want to probe more on Indian China in a second. Um, mm-hmm. The other big question, I, mean, I was reading one of your earlier notes and uh, from the Thanksgiving time frame, and you, you talked about your view on rates, and rates is one of the key stories for the markets this year. I'm just wondering, given all the volatility we've seen in rates and just the back up in yields from you know 240 to 280, um, I, I saw your note in Thanksgiving time calling for around 280 to 3%. So we've hit that pretty quickly. Any sure. thoughts on bonds and how that's factoring into your equity bond allocation from a very high level? Okay, yeah. So what we uh,
1: what we did last year was that uh, we made a lot of change in allocation into floating rate bonds. So we moved into floating rate bonds. So that was a really good call, and that has helped us. Now on my view on on ten year, uh, so as I, as I wrote in my my Thanksgiving uh, the Christmas note is that I expect this year to end at 285. Now obviously it's, it's open to you know where it goes, and as you know the ten year is trading still under three percent, but it keeps getting close to three percent. My view in terms of where where the growth is, so yes, I think you've seen a, a really good quarter of growth. Probably you know you will get slightly better growth, though looking at the Atlanta Fed number, which the prediction keeps coming down, I essentially. inflation for me is not a very immediate concern. And the reason I say that is because if you look at the 10-year tips, and I wrote that in my last newsletter, the 10-year tips, really, the break-even on that is not moving. So while you're seeing a move here in 10-year yield, and it could be for various reasons you're seeing that move, but you're not seeing a move in break-even. So that is is a very solid indicator to me that it's not about inflation really, you know, which is driving this this, this thing, uh, the, the rise in yield. The second thing I bear in mind is that so long as ECB continues to do uh, QE, which it is doing, the U.S. yield actually becomes very attractive to European investors. So that will keep that yield contained. So if it goes to 298 or 295, I mean, there you go. It becomes almost like a no-brainer to buy that because you're getting a much better yield. So I continue to believe that, you know, the 10-year rate is probably not going to shoot much over 3% if it does go over 3% because it is, backed up it's attractive for European investors. Inflation is not really the big concern. It could become a big concern depending on what happens. Now, if you start putting that on, if if Mr. Trump starts doing trade war and tariff war, then where is the 10 year yield going to, rise, to rise? So I think I still hold the view that it will be contained. Uh, and we will see what happens on inflation front, what happens on, on the jobs front. You know, unemployment rate in U.S. will keep falling. Uh, Probably the wages will keep rising. And let's see how much the wage rises. But I'm still open to looking at that. So So far, I haven't changed my major view on that. Our change into floating rate bond has been good, and we still continue to make changes into floating rate bond, bond uh, from uh, fixed rate bonds.
0: Very good. Interesting. So you, get, you refer to, and I've, I've thought this too, that the, the potential to demand from foreigners, Europeans, Japanese, is so high. You know, that in somewhat kept, keeps the ceiling on our rates. Talk about what you think has been happening in the currency markets, because you, a lot of research talks about current rates, rate differentials being a driver of currencies. And mm. you know that's only been widening, where the two-year spread between German bonds and U.S. yields are as high as it's ever you know been in 20 years. Um, but mm. the euro, channel has been strong. Um, and you talk about liking European exporters. I mean, what's your sense of what's happening in the currency markets? If you have any views there.
1: Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I mean, on euro dollar, of course, there are there are various things that that drive euro dollar. And uh, you know, sometimes I I really don't understand why you. Euro- Gets so stronger depending you know that what you look in terms of the GDP outlook or how the political outlook outlook in europe is and uh, my belief is that you know i uh, my call on euro is that you know probably it's going to stay around 125 one spot 25 range that that's my belief you know where euro is going to stay and 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 that is predicated on what I think is going to happen in Europe and what is going to happen in U.S. Now, of course, this can all go haywire if the trade tariff war comes in. So that will be a different, different situation to look at. But I think that while the economy, while the data in Europe is good, I think that there are some challenges going ahead. And if ECB starts taking foot off the pedal, then, of course, you would have euro rallying, and that is not going to help Europe at all and then you may have you may have things reversing very quickly so my basis is that 125 to me seems like a fair or rather slightly on a higher side and I I do not expect the euro to move ahead of that unless there is a very strong underpinning on the economy side which I don't see I mean I, I, I may be wrong but I don't see that you know, there's a healthy underpinning because I do follow policy and government changes very closely and I see that as a over huge bearing on what happens and people just seem to realize later on i mean you will recall six months ago or at least six months ago people were saying Merkel is the leader of the free world and she can't even form a government so you know there are certain things you know which the narrative gets completely clouded by by media and people writing pieces you know which they feel and they think is the right thing to write and not necessarily what is happening on the ground now by by comparison i think the u.s economy looks much better and that is my basis of you know where my U.S. overweight comes from, so that tells me that Fed will be active. Fed will, I mean, I have said that Fed is going to raise rates three times this year. I think probably that's going to happen still, and that will make the rate differential interesting, as you also mentioned just now. So on that basis, I would think that euro dollar, in my mind, should not go higher than one twenty five.
2: So I just want to pause a moment and reintroduce our, our guest today. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM one eleven. I'm Chris Gennady with Jeremy Schwartz hosting the show. Uh, We're speaking and and spending this half hour with Manish Singh, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Crossbridge Capital. And uh, for those of our our listeners that have been listening, we're we're seemingly taking a a tour around the world, uh, thinking about different markets, be it the U.S., uh, be it Europe for the most part now. Uh, But I did want to take this segment and zero in and drill down. Uh, Manish, uh, you had mentioned you're you're quite positive about what's going on in India. I'd be curious uh, on more specifics there as well as how you would structure uh, an investment into uh, that particular country today. Sure. Uh, so for for India,
1: I mean, uh, we, uh, I, I, this is not a promotion, but I use wisdom 3 ETF, you know, uh,
2: oh, thank for
1: allocation. Uh, so I mean, I I, I quite like it. it's an easy way to play uh, in my mind. Uh, if, if we are looking at, if you, one is looking at a uh, single stock, then I would definitely stay with private banks. i.e. not the publicly owned bank because there are still issues which could happen in India. But what what I the reason I'm positive on India and uh, is is as follows, you know. A lot of things which is happening in India, let's take the example of the last uh, banking scandal which came out, the PNB scam. I mean, the fact that these things come out, I see as a positive because these things were there it was were not coming out. So I see it's almost like a, at a point where these things cannot be hidden anymore, people who were responsible of hiding it and, and, and just plodding it along are getting found out. To, to me, it's like actually a bullish signal because in the sense that you're seeing the cleanup is happening. So that makes me very positive of course you saw the gdp number which is strong especially strong was the, the the investment number which was very strong investment going into the economy and i know some of these policymakers of the poly or the policy because i've been following it very closely and i see there's a genuine genuine interest in growing the economy and doing better so when you have the political will and the majority as is the case with the current government remember we haven't had a majority center right government in history of India until Prime Minister Modi got elected as a majority center-right government. So you are seeing these things happening in India and this will continue. And there is a genuine momentum on the ground from the people who have benefited from it. Of course if you if you see some of the biased media narrative you may you may misunderstand that that something else is going on. But on on, on base of data, on base of what is coming out and what Prime Minister Modi himself has done, it's very positive. However, I would I would I would caveat it in a big way. India is still an emerging market. Uh, emerging market, uh, dollar can still play a big role in terms of what happens in India, and so I think you have to be careful about. You don't go overboard completely and, and lose track of, you know, what India is doing. So, however, I would say that if you were to keep your money in, in equity and leave it for five or ten years, you will be making a lot of money. I mean, that, that I strongly believe in, even though you will have volatility on the way in, in what is happening. So on that basis, for, for policy reason, growth reason, the reform that we are seeing in India, those are the reasons that makes me positive about India.
2: We've uh, on the, on the program here. I've had uh, numerous guests talking about things like uh, the digital revolution in India, as well as just the potential, uh, both from an, a GDP growth perspective as well as even uh, an equity market uh, perspective. So we would absolutely agree that if you have the proper time horizon, obviously year by year can be a, a bit volatile, as as you said, it's still an emerging market. But uh, over the long haul, few places have uh, the growth that India really has and the potential that it has. So Wisdom Tree is right on the same page uh, with you there. Um, I'd be curious uh, because you also mentioned... China mentioned certain firms like uh Alibaba which are are ever more prominent Tencent is certainly another one uh, within various indices uh so uh, in terms of how you're looking at China I know there were some recent announcements about um prime uh, uh president Xi essentially having a, an unlimited term uh, at this point mm-hmm. so uh mm-hmm. would would just be curious on on your thoughts uh there in China as you said you were also quite positive there as well
1: Sure uh, so I think that uh, on on President Xi's announcement that he's going to continue or likely going to continue, I think it should be welcome because let's look at it two ways. First, it is it is, it is self-imposed rule that you know you cannot do more than two term. I mean, you have in Europe Merkel going for fourth term. You have you've had uh, uh, Tony Blair in UK third term. So I think term itself should not define that you know whether it is it should be eight year or ten year or twelve. That's for a nation to decide. I think I think so. To me, that that doesn't worry me. The second aspect. President Xi is staying on means that the reform will continue and they will make accelerated reform. To me, that's a good thing, because you have seen that how much China has benefited from what has happened and how President Xi's war on on corruption, President Xi's war on other things, have been welcomed by the people. You haven't really seen, you know, the only people who are complaining probably who are losing out from that or who have some vested interest to to talk down the country. So I think that if you take that in account, continuing or continuation of President Xi, obviously is helpful. Now... Uh, like everything, you know, too much of one thing can be bad. <laughs> so, you know, I think we have to be very careful about that. So, I think so long as you know he has intention of, of stepping down at some stage and not continuing forever, which happens in many emerging markets and, and frontier markets, then I think it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a concern. Uh, from my my discussion with, uh, with 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 people that I know uh, and people that I have met in London or I, I liaise with in China, I mean my my belief is that you know. China has set itself on a path to really become a great economy, and they have a great history. They have a great history. They know they have a great history. They want to achieve that. So in that respect, you know, if President Xi stays on the five year I see that as a positive because the reforms are on track. What what he's doing, he needs more time to do it. Uh, People are behind him. You haven't seen any outcry from anywhere saying that, you know, this is a bad thing, and that just means that he's going to make even more changes, and that should be seen positively, given the importance of China to the world second largest economy and probably the largest on PPP basis. So I, I think that that's very important what has happened.
2: And as we uh, get towards the end of our, our first segment on the on the show here today, I, I would I feel like I would be remiss um, in reading some of your commentary. Uh, I feel like we have to at least touch on uh, some of the market movements that we saw in the U.S. as well as some of the things that we saw within uh, different derivative uh, type markets uh, relating to uh, the VIX uh, among other things uh, in in your view as you as you kind of look at a big surprising uh, shift in say the level of volatility given your experience on the quantitative side how might you help people get the proper context thinking is, is this sort of the beginning of the end of the big bull market rally that we've enjoyed for an extended period or is this sort of a shorter-term blip that many people who are waiting on the sidelines might benefit from thinking of as an entry point into, say, the U.S. market? I know you had indicated you're still overweight U.S. Mm-hmm. So in terms of our, our last question today, I would be curious on your thoughts there.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think what happened in the week's market, and, and, and it has been very well written, the XIBT, which completely went bust and $3.5 and was lost. I mean, uh, what what we we saw was, Basically, financial engineering gone wrong, really. You know, people engineered thinking that you know VIX is going to continue to fall. And, and truth be spoken, I mean, 2012, 2013, when uh, uh, Europe or eurozone was a crisis point, uh, there was some implied risk premium, you know, in, in in VIX, and and that made the VIX look higher. So if you were selling that, you were making money, and you made money for next two years or eighteen months. Oh, that's that's well and good. But then, uh, like everything, it was overdone. It, it was overdone, and it was oversold. I mean, these reverse ETFs are not supposed to be held for long term. These are for short term. I mean, the the prospectus for XIV says in bold and underline that if you hold your ETNs as a long-term investment, it's likely you will lose all or substantial portion of your investment. The long-term expected value of your ETN is zero. So they told everyone that the long-term value is zero. So I don't think it's a case of mis-selling. also. It's just people not understanding what they're buying. Now, to to your point about uh, should one get into the U.S. market, I mean, I think that at some point, you know, the cyclical recession has to come. Uh, what we will see is that you know we we will be going back to a normal cycle when you have the next recession, which probably is going to happen sometime maybe next year or maybe end of this next year, as, uh, but definitely in first term uh, of President Trump. Uh, that should not be a worrying sign, which just means that you have come out of zero rates and you're back in a normal cycle. What you have seen now with VIX ETF and and the wall is that you're back to two-way market, i.e. you have to think about should you be just holding on and and, and then see whether you can make money or should you be doing some short-term trade. So I think that the market clearly now will become a short-term trade market where you will have to look at stocks that are winning and stocks that are not going to do well. So I think that that is the change. But if you ask whether people should be investing in U.S. equity, absolutely. I think that, you know, as I mentioned right at the beginning of the program, and the U.S. growth story is much better. Uh, U.S. Uh, structure is much better. Uh, dollar, king dollar is the king dollar. And I think that the dollar, that adds a lot of value. And I know people keep talking down the dollar, but it takes a long time and substantial amount of time. To replace a strong currency, I mean the reason uh, sterling got replaced and it took a long time for dollar to replace sterling was because of petrodollar. I mean, if if U.S. had not done all those deals with Saudi Arabia and made the dollar the base currency for oil oil trading, I mean, dollar would not be where it where it is. So, is petro yuan going to replace that? We shall see. Of course, China is going to try that. They know that they don't have, they can't achieve uh, yuan to be the major currency unless they influence all the financial institutions. So, they have come up with their with their own financial institution. Um, in terms of the investment bank. Uh so I think that there are lots of political changes and structural changes are going globally, which may not be very evident to everyone now, but those things are happening in the background. But I strongly think the dollar still has a long to run and still has a lot to prove. Of course it depends on what Mr Trump does. If if he decides to follow foolish policies then, then that may come to an end sooner than than being played now. Uh but but I I'm still a believer that US economy U.S. dollar, U.S. ingenuity, and you saw that in terms of shale gas. You know, shale gas happened because of the ingenuity of the U.S. US and the way it works. So I, I still believe in that, and therefore I, I, I will stay long U.S. equities.
2: So Manish, I absolutely uh, want to, on behalf of Jeremy and myself, thank you uh, for being a guest on our, our show today. Um, I was able to uh, prior to the show really Google uh, your name. Your your blog came right up. So I would I would absolutely encourage uh, any and all clients uh, and prospective clients to uh, take a look uh, at. Uh, Manish's blog, there's really a lot of great points there on the markets. Um, To the rest of our audience, please stay tuned. After a short break, uh, we'll turn our focus over to the Fed. I'm Chris Gennady, hosting today with Jeremy Schwartz on Behind the Markets, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Chris Gennady, Associate Director of Research at Wisentree, hosting today alongside Jeremy Schwartz. As I said going into the break, we're going to turn our focus now to the Fed for our second segment. Um, Our guest today uh, is Professor Tim Dewey. Tim is a prominent Fed watcher who writes a blog about monetary policy and economics. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here. Tim, I'd, I'd love to start off by helping to introduce uh, you uh, with your background and, and think about uh, how our audience uh, can, can kind of get familiar with, with your experience. I know something I'd be curious to, to hear in your opening remarks is how long have you been following uh, the Fed quite closely?
3: Uh, since, uh, 1999, I think, uh, I was working uh, for a gr- firm in, uh, Washington, D.C. called the G7 Group at that point when I started it, uh, doing that, 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 line of work. Uh, then I subsequently moved back to Oregon and became reinvolved in it, uh, somewhere prior to the housing, uh, crash, uh, housing bubble slash crash, so around 2004, 2005. So, I've been doing it basically for... Going on in almost 20 years here,
2: and a lot's happened in those 20 years, uh, to to say the least. Um, I'd I'd be curious uh, as as we sort of open the program here and on our last segment, we we talked about it from sort of one perspective, but uh, clearly. Uh, If we were thinking on, on, say, Monday, what we'd be talking about here on Friday, we would say 100% uh, Jerome Powell is testifying before the House, before the Senate, uh, and it's important to dissect any and all comments that he makes to try to get any sort of signals that he may uh, either consciously or unconsciously send uh, as to the path forward for monetary policy. But of course, yesterday, we've had some uh, interesting announcements from the Trump administration. So... uh, I would be curious on your take, having looked at these types of matters uh, through the years, how important are things like the tariff announcement to uh, essentially factoring in to thinking about the path forward for an institution like the Fed? Because, of course, on on the face of it, they say unemployment and and inflation, uh, but in practice it's quite clear that they look at a whole host uh, of other things. So I'd be curious on your thoughts there.
3: Right. It all depends about how... All of those other things factor into their their, their forecasts for their their primary objectives, which is full employment with um uh, you know max uh, low sustainable prices, right? Um so so to the extent that the trade um uh that the we can view this tariffs as something like a supply side shock, right? Where where now we have higher prices and probably a constrained output uh, as a result of these kinds of tariffs. Um, so uh, the, the, the response, I think, for the central bank would be, well, maybe this is going to take a little bit of growth off. Um, to the extent there's somewhat higher prices, they would say, mm, it's likely that these are to be um, uh, temporary. So they're not going to be a per- persistent impact in the, per- in the inflation mechanism. So we don't really have to worry about that too much. So the net result would be something like maybe we can not – scale-back um, uh, interest rate forecast. But uh, before I say that, I want to caveat that that you know the tariffs themselves at this point are fairly small, and I would not expect them to have those kinds of large macro impacts uh, that could t- could shift policy like that.
2: And I'll, I'll be honest, the since for the last two weeks I've been traveling throughout Europe, uh, had some meetings in Italy, had some meetings in Brussels... And I feel like every start to every client conversation uh, was about the Fed and about uh, the various thoughts that we might have on the path forward. And, of course, uh, the consensus seems to be around three rate hikes uh, with a continuation of the lowering of the reinvestment of the interest on the balance sheet uh, instruments and gradually starting to wind that down. I'd be curious how, how someone with your experience would sort of start at the consensus view and then help our listeners sort of dissect how they should uh, essentially factor in the probability that either we might have four hikes or we might have two hikes. What, what are some of the key things that someone in your position might be looking at to help just general people have a better idea of what the Fed is looking at and what they're thinking of and how it leads to the policy that we actually see meeting to meeting?
3: Right. So that baseline of three rate hikes really stems from the uh, Federal Reserve's most recent summary of economic projections. Where policymakers put down their, their forecasts for GDP growth, for un, unemployment, for inflation, and for interest rates. And we divine a central policy path from that. Um, that generally comes from the median policymaker um, a vote on, uh, for example, not vote, but median policymaker view on where interest rates are likely to head in the, in the uh, near term and longer. Uh, so 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 that's where that comes from now to be honest that's not really a it's not a consensus view of the institution uh, that's sort of a guess of where the consensus view would be uh given the forecast, but it doesn't really represent an official uh, forecast for, for the federal reserve you know that said, that sets an expectation that policy is likely on target for for three rate hikes this year and then uh, two to three in in twenty nineteen So that's where that basic expectation came from. Now, when we think about how that's maybe evolved, we look at really what's happened since that last forecast was released. and So that was in the middle of December. Uh, Since then, we've seen a fairly solid uh, U.S. economy, Uh, hasn't shown a lot of signs of of weakening, uh, and if anything shows signs of, of strengthening. You can look at the um, Institute of Supply Management report this week, which was very positive for manufacturing and suggests the U.S. economy is on a fairly strong cyclical upswing. Uh, you see, you look at that. You also look at uh, maybe policy changes have been announced since, since then. So, for example, the uh, spending increases that we saw with the bipartisan spending agreement. And you look at these things and say, well, what's going to be the most likely direction in the change of forecast? And then how was that going to impact the, the, the likely direction of the, the interest rate policies necessary to uh, maintain full employment and uh, stable prices? So I think when we look at what's happened since, since, um, uh, since uh, uh, the last uh, time we saw these forecasts, we would conclude that a net, there's going to be forces at risk, uh, an increase that cause us to think that there's a risk we're going to see an increase in those forecasts. For interest rates for this year and next year.
2: So I want to pause for a moment. I'm Chris Gennady, uh, hosting today with Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Uh, we're taking this half hour with Tim Dewey, Fed Watcher and Professor of Practice in the Economics Department at the University of Oregon. Uh, Jeremy, um, I know you'd like to get into the discussion.
0: Tim, thanks for, uh, again, joining us on the show again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um the You know, the, this is the first time really this week we're getting a real glimpse of Powell and uh, testifying. And I'm just curious on how you see him as a communicator. Um, you know, on, on Twitter, I've seen people like uh, Mark Dow say perhaps he's even a better communicator than Yellen or Bernanke. Anything from just the testimony, how he's trying to manage expectations that you're know? taking from how we talking to the markets right now?
3: I would say that he was very um, confident in his uh, testimony and his response to answers. Uh, that that he actually looked like he'd already been in the, in, in the job for for a couple rounds of this. Uh, so he's very confident. Delivered his his message with um, uh, certainly a, a degree of um, caution, um, particularly in the second one about you know, how his words would be interpreted. interpreted. Now, the, the the Tuesday one. Uh, he was a little bit more th- forthcoming, uh, certainly in, in explaining what his views were and how they might be uh, not, not necessarily that those are the same views as the FOMC's. Um, and I think we kind of pulled back a little bit of that on on Thursday. There's always this caution of, of Fed um, uh, chairs, do they want to – going to use their views as sort of public anchors for every, uh, for, for the decision-making process, or would they prefer to keep uh, the decision-making process a much more um, uh, consensus-driven process? So, you know, the, 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 we're seeing, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that um, uh, that this is a dramatically different shift from uh, our previous chairs, uh, but I, I do think that there's, there's a little bit more initial confidence
0: in the job than maybe we saw in our previous chairs. Do you get a sense? And on your blog, you you had a statement that we're finally getting to, you know, central bankers thinking that we're getting more in the danger zone for inflationary pressures. I um, know I saw um, Kaplan of the, the Dallas Fed recently in, in Europe speaking, and he he was trying to say, you know, there was all this volatility in the markets. He was counseling, you know, volatility is normal. Um, and people have been conditioned that the markets get volatile, the Fed steps back. Do you think this is the year they keep going, even in the spirit of volatility, or any sense you're reading on, on those that management of volatility, inflation pressures, and different markets right. generally?
3: I don't think the volatility that we've seen so far is enough to deter the Fed from continuing to raise interest rates. Uh, in the scope of, of, of um, what we've seen over the last couple of months, Uh, I think that the decline in in stock prices we've seen recently is not terribly unexpected, and I don't think it was unexpected for the Federal Reserve. In fact, I think it's almost better for them that this happens uh, a little bit sooner so that the the decline is not as great as it might be if if stock prices had kept going up uh, basically nonstop for another two months. So I don't think we're seeing that kind of um, uh, negative impacts from these stock drops that would uh, uh, influence the Federal Reserve's um, decision. I think really what the Federal Reserve is looking at is, how strong is growth right now? How is that feeding through our, through our forecast? Uh and and already it looks like um uh you know the the pace of growth is, is likely to put a lot of stress on these forecasts for 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 stable ish unemployment this year and for um stable and low inflation.
2: And so uh Tim, I'd be curious, uh jumping back in here. Uh, In terms of how you think about sort of the nexus of Fed policy, one one indicator I know that Jeremy and I spend a lot of time looking at is the two-year, 10-year spread. And you can go back, of course, to the late 1970s, and you see that uh, usually when you get that inverted yield curve measured in that way – It presages a a recession ultimately because at that point it's where the Fed has raised interest rates so much that they've decided the risk of inflation is so high that they need to put the brakes on the economy. Um, we, we heard our last guest, and we, we've heard others, thinking about the potential uh, that a cyclical re- recession in the U.S. occurs in 2019, uh, but would be curious, uh, again with your experience, uh, how you think about approaching uh, that very important question really for all asset classes around the world.
3: No, I th- think that's a great question. Um, a 2019 recession. Uh, so so you kind of have to back it up. so see so you take that yield curve story, which which is 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 very evident in the data it is arguably the best um uh, longer run predictor of a recession uh typically what you see is is the Federal Reserve um, raises interest rates uh, and at a certain point stock markets, or excuse me, uh, bond markets start to, to to piece together Well, maybe they've risen them too much and we're going to expect interest rates to, to fall and that tends to keep downward pressure on that long end of the yield curve. Um, uh, and that's usually the, the bond market signal that yeah, conditions in the economy are weakening and we should be concerned about um, uh, recession. What we've seen in the past is, Generally, the inversion of the yield curve occurs almost a year, if not more, ahead of the recession. That's why it's, it's, a lot of people you know, are hesitant to buy into that, that story, the yield curve story, just because when the yield curve inverts, actually some of the data is going to be looking pretty good. Uh, so, so then that gets you the question of, well, well what is the likelihood of this 2019 recession? Well, in order to get that, you'd have to have factors that are really driving up, I think, um, uh, interest rates, so short-term interest rates, quite quite rapidly here in the next couple of months. Uh, and, and I don't see the Fed making quite that big of a change in that period of time. So if the Fed were to invert the yield curve by late this year, then the earliest I'd expect a recession would be late 2019. If the Fed didn't get around to inverting the yield curve until – um, uh, you know, middle of next year, then we're looking probably at least another year out. Uh, so my uh, my view is that a recession this year is very unlikely. A recession in anything before the very late part of 2019 is very unlikely. If we're going to have an issue, I think it would be pushed off until 2020 or not.
2: And, and something... Related to that um and, and along a similar line uh you'll you'll hear uh, a lot of the big players uh within fixed income from time to time uh, announce that it's going to become the beginning and and might we we already might be in uh the beginning of sort of this bear market for bonds. I know uh the u s tenure hit around a level of say one point three one point four a, a few times uh a few years ago. And now we seem to be in this upward trend, but we've been head faked before, like in 2013, and we subsequently went down significantly after that. And so you you sort of look at the broader range of history. You say from the 1980s to today, by and large, a bond investor over that full long-term period has done quite well. But looking forward over the next 10 years, the next 15 years, it's very hard to take today's starting point and say, that bond investor does equivalently well over this next period. And I I would just be curious to get your sense uh, and thought process on how to think about what could be an important changing dynamic in the bond market. Or if you're on the other side of the coin and you're saying we're probably going to get head faked again and yields may very well go lower from levels around 3%. Right.
3: Well, obviously, it's very hard to recreate that you know, move from 1984 till now in bonds. Uh, yes. There's just not <laughs> enough room to run. Uh, even if we did go back to, to, to uh, um, uh, you know, 1%, it's, it, it would never be the same. Same. And so, you know, it's unlikely, again, that, 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 that bond investors are going to see the, the same kind of, 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 of patterns that we saw recently. Now, now, it is a great question, though, of to what extent do we see bond prices normalize over the next two years? Uh, and, and, and to me, that really reflects a, a deeper issue as to what extent do we think that neutral rate of, of interest has fallen. Uh, and if it's fallen to something quite low, like 1%, uh, we might not see longer rates rise too much above 3 to 3.5% um, uh, in this cycle. Uh, So that would be, you know, I I think uh, it's reasonable to talk about that kind of story where neutral interest rates have fallen so much that we don't see a large um, increase in interest rates here going forward. you know, th- then you get into an issue of, well, what could then change that situation? Well, you could talk about higher productivity growth. You could talk about um, uh, faster um, uh, demand growth fueled by uh, fiscal stif- stimulus and deficit spending. Uh, you can talk about the possibility of higher inflation in the future. So you can talk about a number of factors that then would say, well, interest rates are actually going to be rise um, uh, you know, to 4.5%. Um, Those are the the two scenarios I I tend to work with when I think of what's the likely path of of, – what's the higher-end path of interest rates going forward.
2: And, and Tim, we probably have time for one more question at this point. Um, I would love to get – uh, your sort of uh, quick sense on the U.S. dollar, because obviously interest rates and the differential in interest rates between the U.S. and these other markets around the world, are it's an important factor. So what what are your thoughts uh, from here on the U.S. dollar? And keep in mind, we, we do have a limited time left at this point.
3: Yeah getting getting a handle on movements of currencies is always one of the more challenging uh um uh, issues just because you're you've got the difference between a, an interest rate fact and a, and a portfolio balance effect. so so if you're in an era right now where uh, uh, you know, investors, foreign investors want to capture the benefits of higher interest rates. We would expect some some dollar appreciation if we had a, a an era where investors saw the U.S. as a relatively better um, uh, uh, stock market bet. We'd expect some some uh, dollar appreciation. So we're in that zone right now, where I think there's been some some um, uh, um, Worries or concern about why the dollar has recently strengthening, but but over a recent month it has had been weakening. You know why? Why have we not seen more strengthening in the dollar? And uh, that that right now is is uh, I, I think has reflected you know a view that there's fairly strong solid um, gr- growth abroad, and that's that's um, uh, been been limiting some of the strength of the dollar. And we'll see, you know, if that. If that evolves differently going forward, if, you know, you, the, the difference between, you know, higher interest rates, you know, does that prop up the dollar? Does a higher interest rate slow growth? So, you know, it's, it's a very um, uh, challenging situation. It's one of the classic. It depends on one hand, the other hand situation.
2: Tim, how might our listeners, uh, if they want to sort of either get in touch with you via email or, or look at your blog, uh, how might they do that?
3: Uh, easiest is to find Tim Dewey's FedWatch, uh, T-A-M-D-U-Y, uh, Tim Dewey's FedWatch, and you can Google that, and uh, there will be an opportunity to subscribe uh, to the email list.
2: So, Tim, thank you so much uh, on behalf of Jeremy and myself for being a guest today on our show. Um, I'd also like to uh, rethank our other guest, uh, Manish Singh. Uh, Thanks also to our producer, uh, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, uh, Daniel Bruno, uh, and thank you always for listening to Business Radio powered by the Wharton School Sirius XM 111 have a great week
0: don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio channel 111 join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast